It is now time for Diary of a Wrestling Fan with Bill Chase. And now, here he is, the man who actually remembers a time where much music played, well, music, Bill Chase. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Podcast Announcer. Bill Chase here with another episode of Diary of a Wrestling Fan, the podcast that chronicles my 33 amazing years of being a fan of professional wrestling. I invite you to take a trip down memory lane with me. Today is going to be an awesome one. We're going to be talking about SummerSlam 1997 and all that led up to it. Of course, that was a night where Brett the Hitman, our spoiler alert, <laughs> became WWF Champion for a fifth and final time. Of course, uh, this Bret Hart was different from the one that uh, that I grew up supporting, and not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> but before we get to that, I want to give a quick shout-out, of course, to Pro Wrestling Ontario. From bell to bell, match to match, and show by show, beginning to end, PWO, Pro Wrestling Ontario, produces some of the best competition around. See some amazing talents that the Ontario indie scene has to offer. Check us out on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Give us a follow or a like. Also, we are here on YouTube. If you're listening to this on YouTube, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. The link is in the corner of the video. Check it out, but make sure you check it out after you listen to the podcast. And if you're not listening on YouTube, thank you for listening on Anchor, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are streamed. Either way, just thank you for tuning in. And yes, indeed, today we were talking about that historic night, August 3rd, 1997. There was a pay-per-view party happening in the rec room on our house on Lawfield Drive when I was 14 years old to watch Bret the Hitman Hart battle another one of my favorites, all-time favorites, The Undertaker, who was the current WWF champion at that time. So going back, I think we should uh, begin begin this whole thing with the way uh, the Hart Foundation was formed. So... The guard was changing in professional wrestling. Clearly with the NWO and WCW, people were looking for something more than what they've gotten in recent years from the world of wrestling. The business itself had been on a steady decline despite still having a strong TV audience, but not strong enough to really sustain any uh, draws at house shows or even, even some of the TV tapings and episodes of Raw and Superstars were not drawing the best numbers either. But at the same time, though, I didn't really know a lot of this stuff back then, as I mentioned before on this podcast in this era. But I had, uh, again, a little article I would read in the Toronto Sun in a, a hotline I would call on Spectel, which is our local newspaper's um, news hotline. Uh, other than that, I really didn't know much else. But they, they gave you quite a fair bit of information of what was happening. But I knew that – I did know that Raw was losing the Monday Night War. Uh, you wouldn't know it here in Canada, but it, it, that, that's how it was going. And they needed to shift in a different direction. And looking back in hindsight, you could see that when Brett returned, there was a lot of fanfare. The ratings popped for the week he came back. And then there's just back to the status quo, if you will. And he entered a feud with somebody, of course, I don't even need to tell you, it was Stone Cold Steve Austin. It was a feud. And, you know, people can argue with me all they they want with this. It's a feud that, to me, helped ignite the Attitude Era. Now, I'm not saying they were the they were the only reason why the Attitude Era launched. Some people might try to say that. that that's not necessarily true. There were a lot of contributing factors that uh, that ultimately led to the Attitude Era uh, emerging as it did. And But this was one of them. This feud between Bret Hart and Steve Austin was one of those feuds. And to me, it's one of my all-time favorite feuds. It tells a great story of two men, you know, just trying to be the best. But yet, the way, they, the way one gets onto the other's skin... 
is getting to that longtime hero who has a chip on his shoulder now because of this. Because has wrestling passed him by? Have these stars such as Steve Austin and Shawn Michaels truly taken the spot that he has secured and held over all these years since the early nineties? I mean, that's. I mean, obviously, that's that's how I interpreted the story. Obviously, I mean, we have all our, our own interpretations, but at the same time, it was a it was a feud that changed the trajectory of the business, especially with the way no double turn has been executed better, no pun intended, executed better than it was at WrestleMania 13 when these two engaged in my all-time favorite match, uh, the, the submission match at WrestleMania 13, Brett winning, Brett uh, ultimately turning heel, which has been built up for several several months, well, no, sorry, I say several months, several weeks, I should say, probably since the, the Rumble, at least, the, the, the 97 Rumble was when it really started kicking into high gear. Um, and Austin becoming the rebellious baby face um, because, again, the culture of the 90s was changing. People wanted to see someone who was the – they wanted to cheer the bad guy, the antihero. You know what I mean? It's why even years – like a couple years after this, you know, characters such as Tony Soprano would become popular and be rooted for uh, even long after that. Long after the Sopranos, you have Walter White and Breaking Bad. Again, it is the culture of entertainment. It's time to cheer for the bad guys. And I says the bad guy, he may be a bad guy, but he's not lying. And, uh, you know, he may be doing some deceitful things, but really he's making some good points and he's acting the way that uh, we feel that the world should be right now. Just tough and no nonsense. And Steve Austin definitely captured a lot of that. This was long before he was giving Vince McMahon stunners every week. This was at least about uh, six months before that. And it did signify a change in wrestling. Long Gone was becoming the traditional baby face. And Brett even was, uh, his reluctance to turn, though, he, he did sum it up best in the Wrestling with Shadows uh, documentary that, um, you know, you can only, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, you can only uh, save, save the girl from the railroad tracks uh, so many times before people get bored of it. And then, of course, Brett's said many times since that, you know, he, look at the, he looks at the list of opponents he has as a face, and then he looks at what he has as a heel. As a heel, it was a lot more intriguing to him, and he felt that he could do better that way. And he was right. Because I really, if Brett tried to be a face the rest of 1997, mind you, if that happened, probably a screw job might not have happened, but we'll never know. Um... Oh, yes, I'm doing an episode of that in November. We'll go for that. But, uh, yeah, like, it, it's a matter of, you know, he wants to long, prolong his career. I mean, he, at this point, Brett is pushing 40. He's going to be 40 in July of 97. And he he wasn't washed up by any means. If anything, he was at his peak. That's that's the that's the funny thing about it. He was actually having some of the best matches of his career at this point. And he was, again, just on more often than not. Mind you, he always was, but still, it just even it just seems like he was firing on almost literally all cylinders at this point. Um, you know, Brett's even criticized himself for not being the strongest promo, but even before he fully turned, he was getting really like again excellent on excellent work on the mic. I thought and those angry promos he was cutting, the bitterness he was starting to get towards the fans even before he chewed them out the night after WrestleMania 13 was uh, you know Brett was really. Exploring a whole new dynamic of himself. And I find that's one of the things I find in the world of wrestling that I've learned, not only just watching all these years, but even seeing it unfold before my very eyes, even just on the indie circuit, that um, a lot of these guys will make tweaks to their character, to their persona, to even what they do in the ring, to keep themselves fresh, to keep themselves intriguing to the fans, 
to keep their brand alive so hey they can sell that merch and no that's not even a, a backhanded comment that is true i mean merchandise makes you money and on the independent circuit a lot of guys uh they thrive on that but even in the wbf i'm sure brett wants to i'm sure brett or whoever else wants to sell merch because that's money in their pocket too and even being back then being a heel there was at this point where you can still sell merch as a heel why because brett was not an ordinary heel which just brings me to my next point so the heel turn brett undertook again no pun intended was that he was pro-Canadian. He was even pro-world. He actually still praises international fans in Germany, South Africa, Japan, and wherever. But he denounced the United States fans. That was it. That was literally it. He said how proud he was to be a Canadian. He criticized American quote-unquote values. And uh, he still stayed true to his uh, yeah, Canadian uh, pride. And what the beauty of it was, was that it, nothing like it had really been done, at least not on this such as a large scale. Brett was universally getting jeered and booed and having probably, I would dare say, even like he had a lot of heat when he tagged with the Anvil back in the mid-80s when they were heels as the Hart Foundation tag team. Almost smush heat. Maybe even a little more now that Brett was a main event guy. That's the only reason I say that, not because I'm saying the Hart Foundation didn't have heat because they did, but they were also liked in some places too, but I digress. Point is, Brett was not liked really anywhere in America. He still had his following in the Northeast, uh, like New York and that. He still had his following in that region. They never fully booed him there, but that, that is what it is because Brett just has become such a legend in that region, and that being literally WWF country. Uh, but when he went to Canada, he was cheered louder than he'd ever been before. And that's the thing. He always had, even before he was doing this, he had a large following in Canada, obviously, you know, because we saw him as our guy. This guy's Canadian. And Americans may come to us because we don't have many celebrities or athletes to get behind. And the thing is, I hate to admit it, and I may take flack for this, other than hockey, and, you know, there's been a lot of great, you know, Canadian musicians such as Rush, you know, and at the time, uh, whether you're a fan of her or not, Celine Dion was one of the most popular recording artists in the world. She was Canadian. But the granted, the mainstream fame in North America, it was dominated by Americans. That's just a fact. Even among athletes. Okay. It's not I am proud of our Canadian athletes and the ones who have succeeded, and I'm proud of the actors like Jim Carrey, who have succeeded greatly. And again, yeah, this is nineteen ninety seven. Jim Carrey was the king of the box office. Liar Liar had just come out around this time. It was a huge hit. Um again you think again um again losing track here. Okay, athletes again. The only one but however, the most popular athlete at this time. Gretzky was still popular, yes, even so was Mario Lemieux. Donovan Bailey, track and field gold medalist Donovan Bailey, was at this point more popular in my in my opinion. As experiencing this as a kid, Donovan Bailey was more popular than any Canadian athlete at this point. So as time had gone on, however, now here's how I was thinking. Okay, so after Brett did his speech, I was it is heel promo on Raw on, on the night after uh, WrestleMania 13. I didn't necessarily disagree with what he was saying. And it wasn't just because I was Canadian, but the way Brett had been acting in the weeks prior to this, it just still sounded like he was whining. Like that's how I saw him. Brett's my all-time favorite wrestler, and you know, I, I it just sounded disappointing in some ways. But yet, while I agreed with a lot of what he was saying, uh, I was happy that he was being pro-Canadian. I was also starting to like Steve Austin around this time. 
I, I didn't particularly care for Shawn Michaels at this point. To me, even though I had cheered him while he was uh, the champion in that, I felt something about him was starting to bother me. And I'm not known. And again, I didn't know much about the. I mean, I knew a little bit about the click. I knew little bits and pieces here and there. But I, I, I didn't know enough to hate him that much. It was the. It was from a character standpoint. Is is on air character. Uh, for some reason, it just got grating after a while. For some reason, it's just me coming into my teen years. I don't know. I, mean, I just wasn't digging that. But Sean wasn't doing it for me. So I was actually cheering when he attacked Sean <laughs> uh, during that interview. But Brett, to me, was still coming off as a bit of a whiner. So I was kind of mixed on it. Like, what's Brett doing? But at the same time, he's doing this thing for Canada. And then as time had gone on, I was starting to warm up to more of what Brett was doing. To me, it was still whining a bit, but he was not, you know. It took me a few weeks on it. And then my, my, I remember my cousin Jamie, he was telling me, him and, uh, and Wayne, they were both saying how they, they loved this whole new persona of Brett's. They loved how he was... Uh, this pro-Canadian hero. But I'm like, yeah, but he's kind of whining, though. Like, I would say that. I was mixed on it, to say the least. Uh, I didn't cheer against Brett at all. I, I could, but mind you, he did get injured shortly after this, so there wasn't really many matches uh, I could cheer against him. And it is true, though. At, at this point, because, again, we, we I remember, you know, this was around the time, too, uh, the rivalry between Donovan Bailey, who I just mentioned, and... Um, uh, Michael Johnson. And, uh, they had an unsanctioned race, which means it didn't have any, like, um, any effect on their standing in the, uh, like any statistically in the world or whatever. But it was at the Skydome in Toronto and it was the world's fastest man who determined who the world's fastest man is because they've been calling each other out for a while. And the whole country beamed with pride when Bailey beat him. Now, Johnson said he pulled his hamstring, which I still call bullshit on this to this day. Maybe it's just my Canadian pride getting in the way because, again, I supported so many Canadian athletes at this point. And because he won the 400 meter uh, not that long after in the same year. And this was in the summer. So I'm like, he's full of crap. He just gave up because he knew Bailey was kicking his ass and Bailey was beating him. And when you see him, he wasn't really hobbling after, like, full of shit. He's just trying to save face because he got his ass kicked. I still think to this day. Yeah, Michael Johnson, I doubt you're listening. But if by chance this gets back to you, you're a loser. Bailey beat you. <laughs> I sound like, I, I, I'm just sorry, I'm just reliving my 14-year-old self. So much so, and I'm fast-forwarding a bit here, but so much so, uh, we, we bought the, the, the Bailey versus Johnson t-shirt. Uh, my, my parents bought it for me, I think at Sports Check. A store in our local mall, and I wore that to Florida just to rub it in all their faces. Because Michael Johnson, and Michael Johnson was a great, uh, great track and field star. He's one of the best of all time, in my opinion. I'll even go as far to say that Michael Johnson is one of the best uh, runners of all time. But there was a time Donovan Bailey was better than him. It may not have been too long, maybe only been like a year or two, but Donovan Bailey was better than him for a long time, in my opinion. <laughs> but anyway, I know it's easier on a chair quarterback, but whatever. Uh, as like I said, as a fan watching that race at the time, I was just so glad Bailey beat him. But yeah, that's what I mean. Like, um, it was around the time of that race, the hype for it, and watching the hype for that Canadian Stampede pay per view that Bret Hart 
uh, in the Hart Foundation headline against a team of American wrestlers in Calgary. Seeing the magic of that, seeing the pride that Brett was bringing to the wrestling fans of this country. It made me smile. It was that night when he walked down the aisle with Owen Hart, the British Bulldog, Jimmy Anvil Neidhart, and Brian Pillman that I beamed with such Canadian pride. He was like a soldier going into battle. A soldier marching on to the enemy. And from there on in, I never doubted. I didn't have mixed feelings anymore. I was fully behind him 110% after that. No advance or buts. And then I was, of course, like for SummerSlam. Now, The Undertaker was my other guy. But this night I had to go against him. Because the way I saw it as a fan back then was that Brett was bringing the title back to Canada. That he was fighting for this title for us. And watching his journey being, <laughs> no pun intended, screwed out of the title time and time again. We were all behind him. And by that, I mean myself, my cousins, even my dad, who is not into this, you know, into wrestling much anymore, wanted Brett to be the champion again. Enjoyed the whole storyline with Brett being the Canadian, uh, Canadian hero. So, SummerSlam approached. The best time of summer is I can have all the cousins over. That we could all watch the pay-per-view together. And so it was the big pay-per-view party that summer. Now, the show itself was quite... Uh, Quite a show they put together. Every match had a stipulation, pretty much. And it was, uh, it was all the Heart Foundation matches, more or less. So, okay, so the stipulation for the Brett match with The Undertaker was that if Brett lost, he could never wrestle in the United States again. And at a famous Raw in Halifax, Nova Scotia, where Shawn Michaels sickened me little prick, putting mini-Canadian flags on his pants. Was made the guest referee, and of course him and Brent, their rivalry goes without words. I said if he didn't rep the match right down the middle, he would never wrestle in the United States again. So this match had a lot going behind it. Now, the weird thing is that a lot of people don't remember this because, again, you and Bret Hart and The Undertaker together, even in these rough times where they were losing to WWE in the ratings for, people are going to pay attention. SummerSlam drew one of their better uh, pay-per-view buys that year, from what I understand. And while it didn't do an astronomical number, it still did really well for the time. The Undertaker and Brett weren't interacting too much on TV. Hey, if it's ever called, Taker was barely on TV at this point for the champion. Taker's focus was more on Kane, even though Kane hadn't debuted yet. 
the whole thing, Paul Bear saying, Kane is alive. Now, that was happening at this point. And we were actually, I always remember being captivated by that. Like, who's Kane? Who could this Kane be? Now, they built that up really well. Red and the Hart Foundation had their rivalries, but their primary rival was Stone Cold Steve Austin. That included Brett himself. And Brett, Brett's rivalry with Sean seemed to take more precedent here, but Brett's quest for the title was very, was, was uh, easy for me to say, was made known by Brett. And they brought in the Patriot. In the go-home show before SummerSlam, Brett lost the Patriot thanks to Shawn Michaels. Again, that built the CEO. Shawn's not going to be fair at SummerSlam. He's going to find a way to screw Brett out of the title, we're thinking. So then came the big day. That infamous Ron Halifax, which we all loved. There was myself, my cousins Jamie, Wayne, because of Mike, who's about nine at the time, because of Corey, who, yeah, was nine as well. We were all there for this. We were psyched for this. So then came the big day. There it is. The big night. SummerSlam 97. Remember, heart and soul was the, the tagline. One of the best posters they ever put together. It was an amazing poster with uh, like a purple cloud, fog or whatever, smoke, whatever you want to say it is, of The Undertaker, you know, in, in the background where Brett's just standing there. It had a big match feel. Say what you want about the WWF losing to WCW at this point, but WWF had an intriguing product. They have improved drastically since 1996. Like I said, every match had a stipulation, pretty much, regarding the Hart Foundation matches. Um, we just talked about Bretts. If Owen Hart was defending the title against Stone Cold Steve Austin, if Austin were to lose, he'd have to kiss Owen's ass. I'm not making this up. That was the stipulation. If Ken Shamrock were to beat the British Bulldog for the European title... Then you'd have to eat the, uh, the, the dog food stipulation. That's right, the dog food stipulation. I almost forgot. Eat a can, the bulldog would uh, eat a can of uh, dog, dog food. If Brian Pillman lost a gold dust, Pillman would have to wear a dress on Raw the next night. And if any member of the Hart Foundation lost, Jim the Elbow Nightheart would shave his trademark beard. And Campbell didn't even have a match. And even other than this, you had the cage match between uh, Triple H and um, Mankind. So that was what opened the show, was the uh, the cage match. I'd never seen a cage match open a show, and I think Hell in a Cell match opened up. But really, it hasn't happened much since then. The Triple H and Mankind actually had a really good rivalry. Uh, it started at the King of the Ring, where Triple H had uh, beaten Mankind, and uh, 
pretty much just beat him down to kind of prove a point at the end of the match. And then it just started this big rivalry. They had that nice brawl at uh, the Canadian Stampede pay-per-view a month before this. And it was just a nice personal little rivalry. Little did I know how big this rivalry would become uh, a couple years later. Uh, so, yeah, how much money these two would draw together. But anyway, I digress. So, yeah, it was... For me, at the time, I liked Mankind. I liked him back when he was Cactus Jack in uh, WCW. So I always was intrigued by his character. His character always drew me in, even when he was feuding with The Undertaker, even though, obviously, I was booing him and hated him. But since King of the Ring, or, or he's doing, this around the time he was doing those interviews with Jim Ross. And I thought, you know, again, as a fan watching, you're thinking, this is interesting. This is a whole new thing they're exploring here. It made mankind this, this you know, demonic character, this like maniac human. It made him like a. It's like it's like to me, it's like he was a maniac for a reason. It's like yeah, he's crazy, he's nuts, and he's psychotic, but there's a reason for it. And I was the only one. A lot of fans were getting behind him at this. I remember my cousins uh, were starting to really get into mankind at this point too. I think they really liked the fact that he took all these crazy bumps and was just the way he wrestled in the ring. Plus, they hated Triple H. We all hated Triple H. We just he was he was just annoying. At, at that point, we was like we just like I remember I think it was either Jamie or Wayne. I think it was Jamie. He was like they made him king of the ring. He said. So the two engaged in a cage match, which was really good. Now, at the time, um, Mankind had debuted the Dude Love character just a few weeks before this, winning the tag titles with a reluctant partner, Stone Cold Steve Austin. So the whole Three Faces of Foley thing was coming to fruition. Cactus Jack was sold just over a month away. But again, this is what was getting people behind Mankind, this whole whole dynamic behind him. And I remember us watching the match... And just seeing some of the crazy stuff going on that made like this crazy bumps and shots that mankind taking into the cage and just made us cringe, but like this guy's nuts. And then although Wayne pointed out, I remember Wayne actually pointed out, he said he did a lot of this stuff when he was Cactus Jack. And he was right. So Mankind won the match. And we were happy that, but the show was off to a good start. But we were anxious for the Heart Foundation stuff. We were still anxious for Taker and Brett. Now, I remember one of the things that we were going on around this time, too. Now, this, so I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but it just, it just popped in my head right now. This is when the gang wars were starting. And by that, I mean there was a feud between the Nation of Domination plus two excommunicated members of the nation, Crush and Savio Vega, throughout their own factions, the Disciples of Apocalypse, and Los Pericos, uh, um, respectively. Now, here's the thing now. People look on, back on this era, or these, this feud, the gang wars, as not very good. And with good reason. Because, I don't know. Something about it just didn't really connect. But the common misconceptions that these guys did not get over. The nation had heat on them. They did. Like say what you want about the nation, they had heat on them. 
DOA, they were over. I remember DOA getting a really good reaction. To me, DOA didn't really start fading away like in terms of you know getting good babyface reactions until Crush left the company a few months later, just after the screw job. After he left, that's when I felt they lost their babyface momentum. That's even me on the surface as a fan. Because I remember them getting pretty good reactions. So, again, that just popped in my head because that was one of the big things happening on television. It was, uh, this whole thing was getting a lot of television time. Now, he might know with the nation at this point, The Rock hadn't joined them. Quite yet. The Rock was, uh, I think, a week or two away from returning. But no, anyway, on with the show. So, Goldust and Brian Pillman. Now, this feud was very interesting. With Pillman playing the, the mind games, the mind games on Goldust. Goldust now was known for the mind game. It was the whole, it was the big uh, buzzword. Phrase, whatever that uh, Vince McMahon would use and coaches would use to strike Goldust playing the mind games on his opponents. And Pillman, though, the loose cannon character, was also could also be a little psychological. I hadn't really gotten as intense as it would until after this, but. It was still heating up at the point of the Pillman making allusions to Marlena, who he had a relationship with uh, years, years before this, before her and Goldust got together. Marlena, of course, uh, I'm sure 99.9% of you know Terry Runnels. So, that itself, and it's, in hindsight, it's sad to say this now, but. I remember I I was I said to Wayne because Wayne well like Wayne and Jamie watched WCW quite a quite a bit in the like the early nineties. Mike hadn't really Mike was really young still so same with Corey, but I remember I said to Wayne, I said Pillman has slowed down considerably. Now, granted, I knew that Pillman had the the leg injury, the ankle injury. And I was just saying this kind of matter-of-factly, not trying to be mean-spirited or insult his, you know, skill or anything like that, because I love Pillman. I did at that point. I did early in his career, and I did right after he died, which was sadly only a few months after this. Two months, actually. And in hindsight, I, I, it's almost like I regret saying that. But that was, again, a big thing that came up quite a bit, even in hindsight, that, you know, the things that made him so good he wasn't able to do anymore. As a 14-year-old kid, it's not as ignorant to say as it would be as a 37-year-old man I am now. And it's not that I had to say that at that time. As me being, you know, a 14-year-old kid who knows nothing about medical medical uh, issues. Granted, I'm 37, I barely know anything, but I'm not a doctor or a nurse or in the medical field, but I'm a little less naive than I was then. But, you know, me just being in my, my blissful teenage ignorance, thinking that the surgery would fix everything. I remember Goldust having a very entertaining match. Some lost, of course, which was no surprise. We were kind of laughing at the fact that Pillman's got the word dress on Raw. We thought it was amusing. And we're thinking, oh, Amel's going to have to shave his beard now. 
Already one member of the Heart Foundation lost. There you go. But after that, it was the Legion of Doom against the Godwins. Now, hindsight in this era has not been kind to the Road Warriors or LOD. Honestly, I still thought they were a badass. I guess that's the beauty of being a fan that young at this point where, you know, I knew about their, I rented tapes of them in the NWA and AWA and all that when they were just the shit kickers who would destroy anything and everything. And while they were still badass, they weren't the same guys they were, like, you and I knew they weren't the same guys they were in, like, they were target. But I still thought these guys were awesome. And the feud with the Godwins made perfect sense. I mean, they just had a simple competitive match on an episode of Shotgun. I wasn't even raw, I don't think. Of Shotgun, and Henry had, had a severe neck injury because uh, of the Doomsday device. Makes perfect sense. The Godwins turned heel. Which, to me, again, this is one of those unpopular viewpoint or opinion or whatever things. I actually thought the Godwins were much better as heels. I personally thought that they looked like they were just nasty Southerners, naturally. Especially uh, Henry. Uh, Mark Canterbury. And Dennis Knight, you know, people can say what they want about Dennis Knight, but that guy would commit to anything you gave him. Whether it was Phineas Godwin or Naked Midian. As ridiculous as Naked Midian was, hey, the guy committed to it. I gotta give him that. But digressing back to the Godwins, I, I don't know, I thought they were usually hateable heels. And I watched this match not that long ago, and now on paper, some people might think this would be the drizzling shits. It wasn't. It was actually a pretty solid match. These guys, they had good chemistry. I remember even the match they had on Raw a few months after this where uh, the LOD would win the tag titles for the final time. I thought that was pretty good. I don't know, something, something about these two teams clicked. And I don't think the Godwins are near as bad as people say they were. So, I don't know, I enjoyed that match. And I remember cheering... During Harvey LOD, we hated the we all hated the Godwins. Now that match will admit, like even though we liked the LOD, we weren't passionate about it. Okay, so here's the thing too, I forgot to mention that. So because of Jamie, because uh, we had this like old chalkboard that just stayed in the basement. I forget how it ended up there. Let me ask my mom, she'd remember, but and we'd use it to do um, our picks for pay-per-view. And then there's no money or anything, it was just for fun, just to see who would get the most right. So We, I think we divided on Mankind Triple H. We all, I think I'm the only one who picked Pillman to beat Goldust. So I lost that one. We all picked the LOT to beat the Godwins. So we all got that one right. But the match that we were really passionate for was the next Bulldog and Ken Shamrock. The Bulldog had been a fixture uh, in my wrestling fandom for many years, whether it be as a um, the face with, the, as Bobby Heenan called it, the Whoopi Goldberg hairdo, or as the heel with the, the crew cut. Bulldog was a beast. Davey Boy Smith, I don't mind saying, was a beast. 
And this thing, he and you look at him like that's the thing. You, you, people forget he wasn't a tall guy compared to pretty much most wrestlers at that point. I think even Brett was taller than him. But he was such a tank that nobody really noticed. And that's why he matched up so well with Shamrock. Shamrock, a legit badass UFC, you know, champion, like world's most dangerous man he was dubbed. And I remember we all split on this one too. Someone speak full line, someone speak Shamrock. Shamrock was on a roll. Shamrock had I don't even think Shamrock had lost on television really at this point. I'm pretty sure. And yeah, Shamrock was well protected at this point, and he'd been on Red Hot Roll. Remember how we he like just dummied Vader back in May. But uh it was a disqualification win for the Bulldog. The match wasn't really long, I remember. I remember it was pretty good. So this show, like, and again, to me, 1997 WWF, again, a lot of people just slaughtered the casual fan base, say it was time, and it was. In terms of numbers and ratings, WWF was kicking their ass. But people forget, 96, the ratings were worse. 96, the pay-per-view numbers were worse. 97, they started improving. Your audience started growing. And this overall product was improving. They may not have been beating WCW yet. They were still a while away from that point. But then their their audience was growing. So this whole show so far has been like we're really enjoying it. And then came, as I alluded to before, the gang wars. It was the Bariquas versus DOA. We did not pay attention to this match. Now, like I said, I, I admitted the DOA was over, but I honestly, and a lot of us just did not give a shit about any of these factions. We did not care. We only took notice when the nation interfered. Ahmed Johnson had joined the nation, which to me, maybe it's hindsight, but I didn't even thought at the time. I remember when Ahmed joined the nation. He was feuding with that. The Farouk put him on the shelf with that kidney injury. Uh, well, you can't beat him, join him. And when they turned Ahmed face not long after this, to me, he never fully recovered after that. To me, whatever momentum he had was gone. He was supposed to face the Undertaker at the uh, Canadian Stampede pay-per-view, but had gotten hurt. And that's what Ahmed Johnson's legacy is. It's um, either he hurt himself or he hurt others. That's what many, many say who worked with him at the time. We did, we did not care about this match whatsoever. But then we are right back in the show again with Stone Cold Steve Austin and Owen Hart. Now... This match is famous for one thing, and I'm sure, again, 99.9% of you know what it is. But people actually forget how great a match this really was. Again, I watched it not that long ago. It was a freaking awesome match. These two had amazing chemistry. And, and it's not like it's a surprise, really. It's Stone Cold Steve Austin and Owen Hart. Of course it's going to kick... 99 levels of ass, and then one more. 
But of course, that infamous moment where Owen went for a tombstone. Now, Owen Hart's one of the finest workers ever. I will, I will boldly say that. One of the best ever, along with his brother. In terms of, you know, between the bell. I don't know if whether it was human error. Because, hey, even the, even the best of them make mistakes. On his ass, and there's actually there's actually a picture in WWF magazine that shows the actual pile driver in midair. Steve's head is well below Owen's. Uh, you know, like like okay, so the picture was taken from behind. You can still see see Steve's head under Owen, right there. If you were to see that still picture well, as it was happening, you know Steve's fucked. Owen dropped on his ass. Usually a tombstone is only drop on your knees. Steve had the neck injury that pretty much changed his whole career. And we're watching this, and we're looking at it, and we didn't think much of it at first. We just thought Owen was being healed by stalling. And we're sort of saying over, why is, why is no one covered? Why is no one going for the pin? And I'm thinking, oh, shit, I think that tombstone might have fucked him up. And as we're looking at Austin crawl, and then the worst roll-up of all time, we looked at each other, like, we're all looking at each other, yeah, his neck is done. So that was, it was scary. Because we even, like, seeing it happen, even as we saw it happen, we're like, ooh, like, we all cringed, right? But, like, we just cringed as always, like, you know, a graphic-looking move. You know, like, we wouldn't think anything else. We didn't think he was hurt. But yeah, no, that's what I mean. The neck injury that changed everything. He still had the career he had, even. He's lucky he even had that. But before I get to the main event, (laughs) I have to mention the SummerSlam million dollar giveaway. Now, for weeks on TV, they'd be given these random clues, and then there was a board of, on the show, there was a board of 100 keys on it. The two contestants picked the keys. So, Todd Pettengill, I actually should mention, this was Todd Pettengill's last uh, last pay-per-view. I think, I think, yeah, I don't think I saw him after this. He was gone. And Michael Cole pretty much uh, came on board. So, the two contestants, this was just so, so confusing. One number was disconnected. The first number doesn't answer. The third call is someone who's not watching the show. That's embarrassing. But the key doesn't open the money. Another person answers the phone. Yeah, just it was a fiasco. Only notable for Sonny and Sable. 
<laughs> Looking pretty damn good. <laughs> God, this is so good. I, I know I'm leaving out things here, but this is where I remember off by in my head. I remember they hyped this up on TV for weeks. So what's his name? That Bob Collins or whatever. Was uh, giving out clues, I think, every week on Raw. So, anyway, <laughs> I, I figured I just at least had to mention that. It was terrible. Uh, <laughs> it would even be more, the guy who wasn't watching the pay-per-view, if he would have said something like, oh, no, I'm saving my money for uh, Road Wild. So funny. I uh, save my money for W City Road Wild. Uh, or no, I spent. Or no, I spent all my money on Bash the Beach. Oh God! I think I'll be anyway, main event: Bret Hart and the Undertaker. Big match feel here. Bret comes out, and we're like we're psyching up. Yeah, yeah. There's Bret carrying the Canadian flag, and he's got some mad heat on him from that New Jersey crowd. And he does O Canada. Now, when he did O Canada, honest to God, I even said. Now, Jamie had already started doing it because Jamie's very patriotic. He still is to this day. We all stood. I told. I said to Wayne, Corey, and, and Mike, stand up, stand up. They're playing our anthem. We did. We actually stood up. Out of respect, a couple of us were wearing hats. We removed our hats for the national anthem. Now, we're also speculating. I remember looking at the, the boys saying, Kane's going to debut tonight. Paul Bearer had admitted Kane was alive on a recent episode of Raw. And remember, I remember the match at the time being long, but I was into it. Like, they were really... They still had us intrigued who was going to win. They had us on their every move. In hindsight, this sadly pales in comparison. Now, it was a great match. Even watching it now, it's still a fantastic match. But the one they had in London, in England, a month and a half or so after this, blew this out of the water. So maybe that's why I look at it differently now. But at the time, we were just like right into it. And Sean being referee, plus the interferences or the uh, Paul Bear Saunders on the ringside, I said, Remember nudging the, one of them on the shoulder, being like, Kane's coming, Kane's coming. But of course, he did not. Take revenge, took care of Bearer. Heart Foundation came down, they were taken care of as well. And even Sean's refereeing, like the whole story of him not being the best referee, would tie into things him later. So then that memorable finish. Where Brett brings in the chair, Sean, Sean had taken a bit of a bump, but of course, since he's a wrestler, he's not knocked out. Not the typical ref bump. But Sean's still selling it kind of, right? So he's not really paying attention to what's going on. And then Brett brings in the chair, continues stomping away on Taker. Sean grabs the chair. And we're like, right, we, we, we like all kind of freeze. Oh, shit. He's going to nail Brett. And we're all, like, we're not even talking at this point. We don't say a word because it's, because Sean keeps questioning Brett about the chair. Brett finally gets fed up. Brett 
bets on Sean. We all go, ooh. Sean takes a swing. I swear. We all ducked. Just like Brett did. I'm not kidding. We were with Brett every step of the way vicariously here. And then we saw him nail take her. We're like, oh my god! She I'm like, oh, Sean's got to count. Sean's got to count. He's got to be unbiased. Most reluctant three count in wrestling history. We all jump. High five at each other. I had a Canadian flag in that basement. And we're lifting it up. We're, <laughs> we're just going crazy. It's like we won the gold medal in hockey. Sean storms off. We see Taker get up. Walk, like, like saunter to the back, like, like he's looking for Sean. Brett with the title. The Hart Foundation joins him. Glorious moment for Canada. Again, we were beaming with Canadian pride. Brett's fifth title win. Then... After the dust had settled, the show went off the air. I remember I looked at I looked at Wayne and Mike. Oh my god, you know what this means? They're like, what? The Undertaker and Shawn Michaels are gonna feud now. We thought that was freaking awesome because they hadn't feuded. Here they were, two of the biggest stars. Um, like a month, like again, despite the rough times for this company, there were some big stars. Brett, Sean, Taker. But yet somehow, despite the fact that they'd been employed together for nearly seven years at this point, they had never had an actual feud. Uh, from what I had read online, uh, as I, I, uh, there's a couple of results pages. They did work a house show together in 1995, where Taker, I think, won by countout. But uh, they had not feuded on TV. They never had a match on television. And it was a match I'd always wanted to see. So I was psyched for that. And I remember as a show on the air, because um, my dad was out at the time with um, my uncle. So we're speculating, well, who's Brett going to face now? Because we're thinking he's probably going to face Sean right after this. But now Sean's probably going to feel with The Undertaker now. Now, I don't know why, but for some reason, I guessed Mankind. But then I thought about it. I'm like, well, wait, the Patriot. As soon as I said the Patriot, they all groaned. No disrespect to Del Wilkes, uh, who played the Patriot. Great wrestler. But as 14-year-old kids, I think we just want to see our hero at least face a challenge of someone that, you know, was, I don't know, not the Patriot. <laughs> I don't know. I guess this Patriot hadn't been around that long at this point. We don't really see him as something that's significant. But we didn't. I think Jamie said, what about Austin? And I thought, oh, yeah, Austin. But then we're thinking, wait, he's he could be hurt. So that kind of kiboshed that. So, yeah, it's probably the Patriot. So it was a triumphant moment, meeting with Canadian pride for us wrestling fans. Fans across Canada, I'm sure, were just delighted Brett was champion. Although, and I 
don't think I don't think I need to really elaborate further because I will come November when I do that ep- that episode. You know what I'm talking about. This is about as good as it got for Brett in this run. The peak was probably Canadian Stampede. That moment, that shining moment of Brett's career, a lot of their careers. But the peak still was leveled at this point. Brett was still kind of leveling off. Like you, know, you hit a peak, and you kind of, maybe sometimes you level off. In the SummerSlam, Brett was leveling off. He won the championship, and you strike with the iron top. Brett was hot at this point. Don't care what anyone says. All you Shawn Michaels apologists out there can argue till you're blue in the face. I'll tell you right now, you're wrong. But you strike with the iron's hot, and Brett again was hot at this point. The Undertaker had a decent reign. And here's a guy, again, you, you look at the reputation he has. People complain, and hey, I was one of them, I'm not going to lie, but when CM Punk had to take a back seat to, you know, John Cena and whatnot, Taker took a back seat pretty much most of this reign. Hell, his biggest marquee match is when he lost the damn thing to Brett. That's really the, I mean, the Hart Foundation, the Hart Foundation thing with Steve Austin and Shawn Michaels and all and everyone that took center stage on Raw every week. Taker had no. This isn't to say Taker didn't have a again. He was like much like Punk. Taker had good stuff going. You know what I mean? The uh, the rekindling of the feud with Mankind. The feud uh, he started feuding with Austin for the first time. Um, feud with Farouk was kind of eh, but uh, yeah, like. Taker had some good, and the Kane thing starting. Paul Bearer trying to blackmail him with a secret. Taker had some good stuff on TV happening. Again, yes, the Hart Foundation was taking center stage, but Taker was right, right there. That being said, however, they they did over they did overshadow his reign that way in terms of the spotlight. Spotlight wasn't primarily on the champion. That main the main I should say the main event spotlight wasn't primarily on the champion. It was on the Hart Foundation more than anything, and Steve Austin. And whoever the hearts are feeding with. Wow, this was a great trip down. I actually really, really enjoyed. Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, if you want to find me on social media, uh, look for me uh, at BillChase33, both on Instagram and Twitter. Um, on Facebook, I'm simply BillChase. Uh, send a friend request. I'll chat wrestling with you. Uh, yeah. Uh, you can listening on either Anchor or Spotify. Follow me on uh, Spotify. Subscribe, whatever you do these podcasting stream services just make sure you listen uh if you're on youtube you're listening to this on youtube subscribe 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 don't forget to check out pro wrestling ontario so uh next week next week we're gonna fast forward a bit to 2013 going into 2014 when i talk about daniel bryan's quest to be the man that's right all the way from SummerSlam 2013 to wrestlemania 30 Brian's quest. So, until next time, this is Bill Chase. Thank you for listening to Diary of a Wrestling Fan and quoting a wise Hamiltonian when I'm telling you, don't you dare miss it. Thank you for listening to Diary of a Wrestling Fan with Bill Chase. 
if any of you ladies out there want to contribute to the show, just swipe right when you see Bill on Tinder. He is quite a catch.